How can you defend a position you believe blindly or never truly even studied? Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses are not Christians. They believe in an entirely different Jesus, a Jesus that doesn't save. Is your life meaningless and purposeless? Ask Bertrand Russell. He says our existence is pitiless indifference. Our children being in a Christian home make them no more a Christian than them standing in the garage makes them a car. They need to hear the gospel and receive the gift of salvation personally. Welcome to Contending for Christ Apologetics, where we contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. So, I got with me my Black Rifle Coffee Company shirt. I got with me my coffee of Cafe Bustello. It's got a little bit of hazelnut, some heavy whipping cream, a little bit of sugar. It is fantastic. If you don't know how to make coffee, if you don't make your own coffee at home, you're totally missing out. Spending like eight bucks on a Starbucks drink when this stuff right here is a lot better. So uh, check it out, learn how to make your own coffee, buy the green beans, roast the beans, grind the beans, drink the beans, everything else with the beans. So you know what they say, beans, beans. <laughs> now nah, I'll just let you finish that. So you guys tuned in because you guys want to check out Irresistible Grace. You want to hear me talk a little bit about Irresistible Grace. This is part of the Calvinism series that we've been looking at mainly looking at the five tenets, the tulip, if you will, the total depravity, unconditional election, the limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, we've already talked about total depravity or inability. We've talked about unconditional election, predestination. We talked about limited atonement. So now we're on the fourth point, irresistible grace. And as we said before, each of these points on the tulip acronym, they need its predecessor in order for it to stand. So, for instance... Total depravity requires election. Because man is unable, God has to elect. Unconditional election requires limited atonement for salvation only for the elect. Otherwise, they claim that Jesus died for all and there's a universal salvation. Limited atonement requires irresistible grace, the drawing of God. And we're going to talk about it. And then irresistible grace requires a perseverance of the saints in order for that person to actually be a true, genuine believer. And so if we dismantle one of these or a couple of these, then the Calvinist tulip foundation cracks, crumbles, and the whole Calvinism tenant building falls. And so they each have to tie into the other. They can't stand alone because the concept, the man-made Calvinism concept, has to stand to be built like that. Now we're not going to just talk about these pseudo-arguments. We're actually going to look at some legitimate arguments that reformers use for irresistible grace. We're going to look at some main passages that they use to promote it. But first, what is irresistible grace? Well, it's known by a couple other names. It's known by effectual calling. You've probably heard of that before. Uh, efficacious call, or the efficacious call of the Spirit, or efficacious grace. Basically, what is irresistible grace? Irresistible grace pretty much says and means that because the natural man before they're saved is dead in sin, the natural, natural man cannot respond to the gospel total inability or depravity. Uh, and so God has to regenerate their heart through the Holy Spirit. So the regeneration of the heart happens, and then that individual hears, responds, and irresistibly goes to the gospel. God changes their heart to make that person to desire eternal life. 
And so irresistible grace is more about the drawing and the wooing of God for one to salvation, negating man's free will and the choice and the decision. And uh, again, it ties into election because only those elect are the ones that are drawn by the Father. So if you're saved and you're a Christian, but say your mother isn't, then according to Calvinism, and I don't agree with it, but according to Calvinism, God chose you for salvation and he, in essence, did not choose your mother. And so he chose you to go to heaven. Meanwhile, he chose your mother not to go to heaven. And this is a idea that I had with a Calvinist buddy of mine. And I have Calvinist friends, and I love them. I think they love Jesus, and they know the Lord and everything. But it's like, how could you serve a God if you believe that God had the ability to save and choose and elect your mom, but he chose not to? Does that sound like a fair or just God? So that's just a side note and everything. I'm not going to get into pseudo arguments or whatnot, but let's talk about some of the arguments that are used to promote this idea of irresistible grace. First is the fact that because man is naturally and spiritually dead, the natural man has to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit in order to understand and desire the gospel message to receive it. Nowhere is this specifically and explicitly said in Scripture. Now, Calvinists get this idea from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's take a look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. And Scripture says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So what's talking? What What's Paul talking about here? What is God talking about through Paul with the Holy Spirit? First realize that Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to the Corinthian church made up of saints in the city of Corinth over there by Italy. This section right here, Paul is really talking about spiritual discernment, the wisdom of God, and how those things and trying to understand the wisdom of God and trying to understand and discern some heavy-weighted spiritual topics, one needs to have the Spirit of God within them, or the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying that the natural man who does not have the Holy Spirit because the natural man is unsaved, cannot discern these spiritual things, these heavy things, these topics of like the supernatural realm or topics of like when Daniel in the book of Daniel was praying for 21 days and, and uh, Gabriel was trying to come but he was held up by the prince of Persia and he had to wait till Michael the archangel came to go ahead and get the prince of Persia off Gabriel and then Gabriel came. This is what Paul is talking about here pretty much in a broad stroke that the wisdom of God cannot be understood by the natural man because they are spiritually discerning and they don't have the Holy Spirit. It's Paul is not only talking about the gospel; he's talking about all of the God, uh, all of God's wisdom. So, it's taken out of context with that passage right there, saying that the natural man receives not the things of God, and trying to just plain it, paint it as though the natural man can't receive the gospel message. That's not what it's talking about. They can read the passage, study that out, and see for themselves. Another one is the fact of if an individual receives salvation because he or she understands the gospel and believes, 
then that individual is in a sense responsible for their salvation and has a reason to boast. So this is one where it says, if God doesn't sovereignly do the work in the heart of the individual first and make that individual go to him, then it's a work on the individual's part and they receive salvation because of what they did. And this totally misunderstands what a work is for salvation. We're going to talk about this verse here in a little bit. But even Jesus says the work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so Jesus even says when he answers the question, what must I do to have eternal life? You have to believe. So Jesus is telling us we have to believe the gospel message. And even if you read the entirety of the book of John, you find that belief in faith in Christ in the gospel is necessity, is a necessity for someone to receive eternal life. And so I don't see how belief is a work. What What's being talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8, for it is by grace you are saved through faith and not of works, it's a gift of God. Paul's really talking about Philippians chapter 3. When he listed off his credentials, he said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I'll circumcise on the eighth day. Concerning the law, I became a Pharisee, and he was more zealous than his other brothers. And Paul was saying all these accolades he had, how great of a person and quintessential Jew he was. He said what? He counted but dung for Christ. And he said no matter what he did and everything he strove for, it was worth nothing for salvation, that he had to turn to Christ and receive the free gift of salvation through faith, which is belief. And so when Calvinists like to say that if you believe, that's a reason to boast, I don't understand how that comes from. Let's check this out though, okay? So Calvinists will go ahead and bring up the idea that believing is a work and thereby you're working for salvation. But let's Let's think this through, okay? Let, let's think through the Calvinist uh, idea of salvation. Really, we're going to touch on this on the perseverance of saints. And basically, with the perseverance of the saints is the fact that you must produce works and persevere to the end, otherwise you weren't a genuine believer. So let's say I just believed the gospel message and I uh, believe I have eternal life. And let's say you went ahead and, and you taught that you were elected, you had to do good works, fruit works were evidence of your salvation, and you had to persevere to the end. Let's say we both die. Let's say uh, I go to hell and you go to heaven. Would it be fair to say that I did not go to heaven because I may not have persevered? Where's the boasting? The boasting is going to be found in the Calvinist position where it says... I did the good works, I was able to persevere until the end, and that's how I was able to get into heaven. The boasting isn't in the belief by faith. The boasting is trying to say you have to do works. It's a legalist works-based salvation. Excuse me. <coughs> Ooh. Excuse me. And so, <clears throat> the boasting is found in those that claim you need to have a fruit as evidence for your salvation. And by checking their fruit, they're saying, okay, check block. I've done a good work. I've done good things. I know I'm a Christian. That is where the boasting comes in from a reformer standpoint. What's another one?
since being born again is a requirement to enter the kingdom of heaven, and John says to be born again is work of the Spirit, not the will of man, then the Spirit enables a person to be born again. I completely agree with you. I completely agree that man cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless they're born of, born of water and spirit. Physical birth, spiritual birth. Totally agree with that. What this passage does not say, it does not say that someone has to be regened by the Spirit before they receive the gospel message. It doesn't say that. When do we enter into the kingdom of heaven? Either upon death or upon the rapture. That's it. Natural man cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This corruption must put on incorruption. We need a spiritual body. We need to be born again. I agree with that. So, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven until we're born again, born of water and spirit. And it's upon death or rapture that we enter in the kingdom of heaven. This is a looking future. This isn't looking now. Saying, you can't be saved until you're born again. Or you can't be saved until the Spirit does the work in you to receive the gospel. This is saying, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven until you've been born again and saved. Totally different. But they're trying to cram so much in there and trying to make it sound good and fit their their concept of irresistible grace to the neglect of divorcing this verse from its context and specifically looking at when do we enter the kingdom of heaven? And it's unfortunate, but I like when I read Calvin is being honest. Okay, I, I like it because there's a quote that says, The Bible is equally clear that we must personally believe in Christ as an act of will. But note the following with regard to these difficult issues. Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. What God has revealed to us, we are to know and understand to the best of our ability. Since the Bible is special revelation from the mind of an infinite God, it often brings the human reader beyond the limits of intelligence. And so what we're told here says that when there's contradictions within the Calvinism concept of soteriology, then we're just going to chalk it up to God's ways is higher than our ways. It's an infinite mind, and we're finite minds trying to understand this. To me, I'm sorry, but that's baloney. Paul tells Timothy, we need to study ourselves, study to show ourselves approved. A workman needs not be ashamed, rightly divided, the word of God, the word of truth. And so this is just what um, I commonly hear is really just lazy exegesis, if you will. Because rather than just wrestling with the concept in the scripture and trying to see which one has more weight and value and truth to it, they're just talking up, okay, I believe in this concept. I don't understand how this contradicts it, but I'm just chalking it up to the sovereignty of God and the knowledge of God and the lack of knowledge for man. And that's a common thread. When they're looking at the sovereignty of God and they believe so much in election, but yet they can't reconcile how man has free will and there's a respond to a gospel message requirement. They can't see how it contradicts each other. And so all that happens is they chalk it up to, I don't understand this side of heaven, maybe I will then. And I'm sorry, I hate to say it, but to me that's just lazy. That's lazy. So these are some of the common arguments that are used for Calvinism, at least for their resistible grace part. What are some passages that are used? 
Well, the first one and probably the most popular one is in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 44. And I'm just going to read them out. And it says, All the Father it gives me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me should I lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then, he saith, I come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. So that last verse right there is like the poster child for resistible grace. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. So first thing I want to point out about this verse is we're going to go back to verse number 35. Verse number 35. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And so, first it says anybody that comes to Jesus Christ can get saved. We'll never have a thirst anymore for spiritual salvation. We'll never have a thirst anymore or a hunger because we'll be satisfied in Jesus Christ. And this ties into John 3.16. For whosoever believe shall never perish but have everlasting life. Second thing is in verse 36. Verse 36, let's see, he said, I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. And so Jesus knew the Jews there. And Jesus knew that some of the Jews, probably a lot of the Jews, saw the works, saw the testimony of Jesus as him being the Messiah, and they chose to believe not. Then we're going to look in the same passage in verse number 29. We're going to actually jump up a little bit in verse 26. Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the God uh, the Father sealed. And they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto him, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. And so here Jesus is telling the multitudes at the time that the work that they're supposed to do is to believe in whom God has sent, namely believe in the Messiah. And so it's always fascinating to me when Jesus gives a gospel message and tells people to respond to a gospel message, believe on me, believe on me. When if Calvinism holds true and irresistible grace holds true, then Jesus knows fully well that some of the people he's giving this gospel message to will never believe. And so Jesus, in essence, is telling these people, believe, although, hey, I know they're not going to believe me. It's a false, a pseudo, a faux gospel invitation, which, again, Calvinism paints God in a negative light. And that's not the God that I serve. That's not the God of Scripture. I don't see that characteristic of God. 
This is one of the reasons why atheists like to paint God as an immoral monster, specifically because, according to Calvinism, he plays favorites in picking whom he wants to have salvation. So, and then look at this one. John chapter 6, though, we're going to be in 64. Jesus says, But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given to him of my Father. So here in verse 64 and 65, we're clearly told that Jesus and God had the foreknowledge and knew who it was that was and was not going to believe in the Messiahship of Jesus. And Calvinists, for whatever reason, do not like foreknowledge, or so it seems. I'm not going to say they all don't. But there's so much emphasis on sovereignty of God to the neglect of the omniscience of God, and that God knows everything. So nowhere in this passage does it say that the Holy Spirit has to regenerate a person before they can even think of and desire the gospel message. It doesn't say that. Time and time again in this passage, Jesus tells these people to believe on the gospel, believe the Messiah, believe him for salvation. So, what's another passage that's used? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse number 30. Romans 8, 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So here we go. He predestinates, and then he calls these people. He calls the people. That was good coffee. What it seems like reformers overlook or Calvinists overlook is the preceding verse. For, for whom he did foreknow, he predestinated. Okay, so right in the beginning is foreknowledge. It's the omniscience of God, something that Calvinist reformers seems like they don't like or they overlook to the neglect, to its neglect. And so we, we see it's based on foreknowledge. Foreknowledge what? To be predestinated. There's that word. So see, these people are predestinated. But predestined for what? It says right there. It says predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's talking about sanctification. It's talking about, okay, that he might be among the firstborn of the brethren. That, okay, number one, sanctification process. Those who were foreknown that they were going to receive the gospel message, they are going to end up being conformed into the image of Christ through first sanctification and then second through glorification and receive the glorified body. That's what he's talking about here. Then he says, those who were predestinated, he called. He called. What's interesting is this call is in the Greek. It's the Greek word kaleo. And if you look at the word, and if you look at the word, do a word study on kaleo, nowhere is it a election to salvation. But it's an invitation. It's not necessarily a drawing and a choosing and, oh, you're coming over here, you're on my kickball team. But it's simply an invitation invitation for people to receive and it's similar to the wedding banquet invitation the parable of the wedding banquet where jesus told a story that all these people were invited to this wedding but they all had excuses and so jesus ended up saying okay tell the servants go to the highways and byways and invite them all and whoever comes right and so that's what the call is that's what the gospel it's an invitation for all for whosoever will come 
Another passage that's used for irresistible grace is in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will compassion. So it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth the mercy. And in the same passage, he's saying that he's using Jacob and Esau as an illustration saying, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. I talk about this in the unconditional election video, but there's a lot of fallacies being used when we're interpreting this in light of Calvinism. First and foremost, we have to realize that in not chapter 9, verse number 2, Paul re reveals 9, verse 2 and 3, that he's talking about the Jews, about Israel specifically. And it's not until in chapter 11, verse number 25, that he bookends it about Israel, talking about spiritual blindness has happened on part to Israel, so the Gentiles might be saved. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 are specifically Israel-centric. And so these illustrations that Paul is using here is showing the sovereignty of God, not unto salvation, but unto a blessing or a position. Remember, Jesus says of the apostles, of the twelve apostles, have not I chosen you twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. So who was the devil? The devil was Judas Iscariot. But Jesus said he chose him. What did he choose him? Does that mean Judas was chosen and elected to salvation? No, 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 no. It means Judas was chosen for a position, the position, the office of an apostle. And just like Jacob and Esau, Jacob was chosen for a position of being Israel. Whereas Esau was not chosen to be Israel, but he ended up becoming of the Edomites, the Edom heritage, if you will, progeny. And so that's not talking about election to salvation. That's talking about election to a position or a particular blessing. Has nothing to do with salvation. The same thing with the Pharaoh when he says, The Pharaoh, I have raised you up, that in you I might show my power, right? And so he's not telling the Pharaoh that he's hardened his heart because he doesn't want the Pharaoh to be saved. He raised up Pharaoh at that moment in history because he knew, again, omniscience, foreknowledge, that particular Pharaoh would be the one that would be so stubborn to not let the Jews go so that God would have these ten plagues with the death angel to institute the Passover and cross them through the Red Sea. So that God knew when in history to do all this. Again, God is transcendent. He's outside of time. We think of time linear. We can't even grasp how God looks at time because to God there is no time. These two examples are strictly sovereign passages about God's sovereign acts and how he's affecting history. Not salvation, but mainly history. And the other one is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And again, they say, see, God draws you. It's not of yourselves. You can't even respond to the gospel without the Holy Spirit regening your heart first to give you a desire and inclination to receive the gospel. So first, again, believing is not a work. Believing is a mental and a heart ascent into receiving the the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins. Even Jesus says we have to believe. This idea is also found all over Romans. Romans is probably Paul's theologi 
theological treatise. Other people have called it his magnus opus. This is his grandest work and is so theologically heavy in nature. And he says in Romans chapter 4, To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justify the ungodly, his faith is counted or imputed for righteousness. And so he says here that we have to believe. We have to believe. There's no way around it. Then I think it's uh, right here in verse chapter 4, verse 24. To whom it shall be imputed the righteousness if we what believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And so again, there's a constant thread that we must believe. That is the one and only, if you want to call it a work, that people have to do to receive eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever what believes in him should never perish but have everlasting life. The free will choice that you and I have is to believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins. Calvinists completely misunderstand this. Again, as I said before, the knot of works that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2 is more about trying to work your way into heaven. Hey, good teacher, uh, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to gain eternal life? Well, what are the commandments? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? He says this do, right? When he says this do, he's saying it in the present tense, saying do this from now, period, continually, and you can do it, pointing to the fact that we can't love God and love our neighbor every second of the day. We just simply can't. It shows the fallacy of saying and realizing that we can't do anything to gain our salvation. Like I said, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul's accolades, Hebrew of a Hebrew, tribe of Benjamin, more zealous than all of them, as concerning the law, Pharisee, things like that. It was nothing for him. Because none of that gained him heaven or eternal life. It was only through belief and faith in Jesus Christ. So, countless times you will read that we must believe for salvation. That is not a work. Like I said, to teach that we have to persevere to the end, that is teaching that we must work to keep our salvation. We don't keep it. It's only by the power of God that we are saved. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the day of redemption. It is by the power of God that we are kept, guarded, preserved with eternal life until the last day. And Peter tells us that in 1 Peter. So it is only of God that we keep our salvation. There is no boasting contrary to Calvinism. Calvinists have that boastful attitude and pride, not necessarily in their personality per se, but in their concept of Calvinism. There's many arguments against irresistible grace. God's will is not always happening. It doesn't always work. God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh right away. Did he go right away? No, he didn't. God's sovereign will did not always happen. There's a difference between his permissive will and his sovereign will. There is a difference. We see also in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is given his defense before really the Sanhedrin and the Jews before he's stoned to death. He says, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Ghost. They are resisting the draw, the tug of receiving the invitation of the gospel. We get the Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verse 4. 
He says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Why would God say that he wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth if he's not drawing all men? Again, it's making God out to look like this immoral monster. Same thing with 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9. It says, Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repent. So this is God's will. God's will is that no one would perish. But we know people perish. So God's will is not being done, and that's his permissive will right there, because man has free will choice. Now, if God is only irresistibly drawing the elect, then he's giving, again, this Foe this false gospel message, giving a false sense of hope to people he never chose. And that's an immoral person. I can't see that. I never will. Again, God is seen as an immoral God who willingly chooses not to draw some and yet tells them respond. That's immoral. If it's a matter of God's God's will, then some verses don't make sense. Like, take, for instance, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew 11, verse number 28. Let me get there. It says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Why are we going to tell people to do this if we know full well they're not going to because you didn't choose them to do it? Luke chapter 9, verse number 5. Luke 9, verse number 5. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the dust from your feet for testimony against them. Now, why is he telling the apostles upon a witness into a town that if they don't receive you, shake off the dust? Doesn't he know who's gonna and who's not because he drew or did not draw them? You see, these verses don't make sense. John chapter 3, whosoever believes doesn't make sense if God knows he's not drawing them. Again, believing in these Calvinism concepts and even irresistible grace makes evangelism a moot point. I've asked this question to Calvinists before. Why do you witness? Why do you evangelize? If God chose those for salvation and he knows who he didn't and he's irresistibly drawing him, why are you going to witness and evangelize? Oh, we're commanded to. Or they'll say, because we don't know who the elect are. And I like that one. Why are you evangelizing? Because we don't know who the elect are. But I think God does. right? So you're telling me that either A, God needs you to evangelize and actually find these elect, even though he's irresistibly drawing them. He needs you. And if you don't go witness and evangelize, then the elect aren't getting saved? Is that what you're telling me? That you're witnessing because you don't know who the elect are, And if you don't go tell the elect, then they might not get saved. So now again, we see some sort of boasting and work and Calvinism saying, Oh, you're elect. I led you to Christ. If I didn't lead you, you may not have heard the gospel, even though you were elect. So God needed my help. Even though he elected you and irresistibly drew you, he needed me, right? That's what we're saying with Calvinism concept is that you're claiming that God needs you to find the elect, when in reality, if you're not a Calvinist, and I'm not an Arminianist, so figure out what I am, then you're, if you're like me, 
then you're witnessing because you're going into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature for the hopes that none should perish, but that all have everlasting life. Huge difference. There's plenty of verses that speak against irresistible grace that talk about free will and the will of God to be resisted. For instance, John chapter 5, and we're almost done. John chapter 5, verses 38 through 40. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, for and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you would have eternal life. And so here Jesus is saying to the Jews, search the scripture. They testify of me, but you won't come to me so that you would have eternal life. These Jews are willingly being ignorant, just like Paul says in Romans chapter 1. The natural man, people, atheists, secular, whatever the case is, they are willing, not Romans 1, I'm sorry, talking about in Peter's letter. They are willingly ignorant of the flood. They are free will choosing to ignore the flood of Noah's day. Even though there's plenty of evidence, there's a free will in, involved there. John chapter 12, verse number 32. John 12, 32. If I be lifted up from the earth, and will draw all men unto me. Now, does Jesus have more power than God? Because according to Calvinists in John 6, God the Father is only drawing the elect. But here Jesus is saying that he's going to draw all men, right? So I would argue that Jesus being God and God the Father still having the gospel message for whosoever will, they're speaking of one and the same thing, okay? They're speaking of one and the same thing. But this verse right here, John 12, 32, clearly refutes the irresistible grace and the idea that God only elects some and God only draws the elect. Because Jesus is saying that as God, he's drawing all people to himself. They have to make the choice. Romans chapter 2, verse number 11. I can't turn in my Bible today. Romans 2, 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. God shows no partiality. God does not play favorites. However, comma, when you're talking about election, and you're talking about the fact of irresistibly drawing only the elect, you're revealing that, yes, God does play favorites. God does show partiality. Why? Because it's on whom he wills, right? It's the sovereignty of God. That's contrary to the characteristic trait that we're told of that God has. It doesn't work. And then this is interesting, too, about resistible, uh, resisting God's will. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, Never, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest the woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. So here Jesus is saying, God is saying that I gave Jezebel a time to repent and turn away, turn back. But she chose not to. God's mercy and grace is so much that he gave Jezebel an opportunity to stop her ways, but she willingly chose not to. Irresistible grace is just another concept, another pillar in the Calvinist concept of tulip that doesn't have very strong, solid arguments. It makes evangelism and preaching of the gospel kind of not necessary. And there's a lot of holes in the passages that are used to promote it and to teach it. So 
rather than just sitting under and listening to reformers, I encourage you to study these things out. Like the Bereans, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they searched the scriptures to see whether they were so. Please, 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 just look into scripture. Study these things out for yourself contextually. Immediate context, surrounding context, and don't forget the book and the Bible context. Those four contexts are very important. So, Irresistible Grace... Does God draw only the elect and make them desire first and foremost and then not reject the gospel invitation? Or does Jesus, like Jesus says, does he draw all men to himself when he's put on the cross? I would argue the second, the latter, that Jesus Christ draws all people. All people have the ability to come to the knowledge of truth, receive eternal life for the forgiveness of their sins through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Because God loves the world. He loves you and he loves me and he loves everybody else. So, next video is going to be on the last tenet. Thankfully, I'm about done with this Calvinism series. It's only been about two years. For some reason, there's a long delay in the middle of these. But, check it out, Perseverance of the Saints. We'll be talking about who has more to boast and who has more to work. And it shouldn't be a competition on who has more to boast because no one can boast about anything. Because salvation is a free gift not of us, not of works, but we'll see where the boasting is in the next video. Until next time, thanks for checking out. God bless. Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weekly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in, and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.